morning and welcome to Rising. Emily, we've got a tremendous show today. Whoa. Tremendous. <laughs> going to be incredible. What do we got for people? We've got a lot, including some news that you might want to stick around for. At the end of the show, uh, Ryan has been just swigging pumpkin spice lattes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he just can't Paul get enough. Here. Paul is here. Yeah, he's, he's a big fan of the PSL. I didn't expect <laughs> it, but he just can't get enough of it. Uh, no, truly, we have a lot going on. There's uh, There was a speech given just last night in primetime by the President of the United States uh, as we head into the fall. Quite literally, he did this in the very beginning of September mm -hmm. as the midterm season is opening up. After Labor Day weekend, the money starts coming in. President Biden goes and gives this primetime address last night. We're going to play some cl clips of it and do a little analysis. But Ryan, just right off the bat, what was your reaction to the speech? Well, th this, whole, this whole conceit that it's not going to be political is silly from the beginning. It's a speech about democracy. Yeah. Like, we forget, I guess, because we've been a democracy for 200 plus years, that the idea of democracy is fundamentally political and constantly in, in tension with other, with other kind of drives in, in, in both the economy, both the political economy. It, it is, it's always been a fight. So the idea that like, even if you're just gonna get up there and uh, give a, a pay on to democracy, that's political. What do you think the Declaration of Independence was? What was the Constitution? That, this is political stuff. I have a take on that because actually Ron Klain, um, a senior White House official, brought that up. Um, so let's listen to what President Biden had to say about the threats to our democracy first, and we'll dive into everything. And now America must choose to move forward or to move backwards, to build a future or obsess about the past, to be a nation of hope and unity and optimism, or a nation of fear, division, and of darkness. MAGA Republicans have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. But together, together we can choose a different path. I feel like that's a pretty characteristic excerpt of how the speech went in general. The president said early on in the speech, I want to be very clear up front, not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But, he continued, there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans, and that is a threat to this country. So he then goes on in thousands more words to specifically reference MAGA Republicans mm -hmm. in this entire speech about threats to democracy. Huge problem, though, is that this definition is not very clear, and the White House has struggled every single day this week with questions about the definition of that. I think we have uh, a clip of Karine Jean-Pierre trying to do that just right to play just and right here. Again, we see majority of Americans who disagree. And so when you are not with where majority of Americans are, then, you know, that is extreme. That is an extreme way of thinking. So you're an extremist if you're outside of the majority position, um, which, I mean, is constantly changing. Depends on how far out you are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, constantly shifting. And so, Ryan, from my perspective, that was the real problem with the speech. It's that if you are going to give a major address um, on the eve of an election cycle and on the eve of the fall midterm cycle about the threat to democracy that the other party faces, 
and you cannot clearly define what that threat looks like, you politically, as a matter of politics and principle, are stepping into something uh, really dark and I don't think particularly helpful because you're implicating a vast swath of the country um, in something extremely dark. And I just think that's bad politics. The optics were really bad. It's the White House, he wasn't well lit. The red lighting was weird. People had problems with the Marines. But in and of itself, I just don't, I don't think that's good politics and I obviously object to it in principle too. Well, did you see your, do you see yourself in the, when he says MAGA Republican, are you like, he's talking about me or he's talking about somebody else? I mean, I would hope that people don't think of me as a MAGA Republican, but yeah. I think they would because, for instance, I fully support ending Roe. And Corrine Jean-Pierre was pressed on that um, in the briefing and basically was like, if you're outside the mainstream position on abortion, which I am, I acknowledge I am, then you're an extremist and you are a threat to democracy. Right, and that very much predates uh, MAGA Republicans. I, I thought it was a missed opportunity because it is able to be defined. Like the way I would define it is somebody who to this day is still like griping about the 2020 election and claiming that claiming like beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was stolen. Which it was that, not. Yeah. Right. And so like that to me is a MAGA Republican. The, re the rest of it, I feel like you fight it out. You want to, hey, MAGA Republicans, let's say they want to ban Muslims from entering the country. Uh, they want to build a wall. They want to cut corporate taxes. They want to, whatever they want to do. Like that, those are things that they can say they want to do. They can run on it. You have an election and then the election has consequences and de Democrats will put up their own positions up against them. It, it's when you come in and say, actually, no, mm -hmm. uh, we don't recognize the validity of this election. That, to me, is what you could have carved out and defined. And the reason I think he missed this opportunity, and I'm going to talk about this in my radar soon, is he, he could have singled out the Michigan Republican Party, which just this week rules, is at the Board of Elections blocked a referendum to codify Roe v. Wade from getting onto the ballot. They turned in over 700,000 signatures, which is you only need 400,000 plus to get on the ballot. And two Republicans on the Board of Elections, whose only job really is to count the signatures and check whether or not they match the address of the voter. And then, boom, you're on the ballot. Like, you're not, you're not on the Board of Elections to dictate what people get to vote on. That's up to the people. They said, no, you just can't vote on this. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not going to allow you democratically to vote on this. It's like, well, hey, Alito said the states are going to do this. They're like, no, we're not, we're not, not going to do it like this. So he could have singled out, said, you have Republicans on the Board of Elections in Michigan who won't even let uh, 700,000 people who signed, who've signed a petition you know, vote on the question of codifying Roe v. Wade. That's fundamentally un-American. Like, you could, you could have given some individual examples. Yeah. Uh, and also then define that, that what you mean, since it's a speech about democracy, like it's not another much of a big step to say, what I mean is people who don't recognize elections are the MAGA Republicans. Well, and here's a, here's a quote that really stood out to me. I will not stand by, and as you listen to this, think of if it sounds familiar. Pretend this wasn't, you, you have no context for this. I will not stand by and watch the will of the American people be overturned by wild conspiracy theories and baseless evidence-free claims of fraud. I will not stand by and watch elections in this country stolen by people who simply refuse to accept that they lost. Okay, that first paragraph in particular where he says the will of the American people, he won't watch that be overturned 
overturned by wild conspiracy theories and baseless evidence-free claims of fraud. That is what his entire party spent the Trump presidency doing through the FBI and the DOJ, because they thought the will of the people, as Peter Strzok said, you know, we will have a plan. Uh, basically, the will of the people need, the people need to be protected from themselves, from the unwashed masses. He was like, the smell of Walmart was making fun of that in those texts to Lisa Page. Um, they spent an entire thing, like, concocting a, this, this narrative um, based on, you know, lies, essentially, and they weaponized the intelligence community to do it. Um, so, and if we're talking about extremism, President Biden is way outside the mainstream when it comes to transgender ideology, when it comes to all a host of, probably when it comes to abortion. Um, if you ask what limits should be on abortion, I guarantee you uh, most uh, Washington Democrats will have a really hard time saying they support limits on abortion. And that's, I'm happy to admit my position is outside the mainstream. That's also outside the mainstream. So when you get into this battle about what constitutes extremism in mainstream and you have an old man yelling at the country um, with blood red lighting behind him, slurring and stumbling his way through the speech, I don't think it works. <laughs> Although, and do you think that they were deliberately channeling the dark Brandon meme with, the, with, with the red like and the it. shadow and the, and the darkness and the... But they had to know that that wasn't going to come across well. I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're in a place where everything's, everything's about the base. It's all the meme. Yeah. And, and so if they can trigger Trump, yeah. then yes. Trump freaks out. Trump then moves closer to the center of the conversation, which is exactly where Democrats want him, uh, by kind of embracing dark Brandon that fires up the Democratic base as well. Uh, in, in some ways, I saw somebody say, uh, you, 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 you reaped, let's go, Brandon, now you'll sow dark Brandon. <laughs> so, That's hilarious. There you go, reaping and sowing. Yeah, I think this is clearly... Combining memes. This yeah. is clearly like the midterm strategy, and it's not an entirely stupid midterm strategy. It didn't work in Virginia to make it all about Trump because there was a candidate there who right. sort of deftly steered it away. But um, if you can have this this looming over every Republican candidate's head, as you say, if you can trigger a response, if you can get you know a drip drip, they're going to do more J six hearings, I'm sure. If you can drip 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 that out through the fall, you eat away at time that can be spent talking about inflation, gas prices, or anything else. So we'll see if it works. We'll see. All right. All right. We'll have our radars up next. That's right. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, my coffee's starting to kick in, so let's talk about former President Trump, who posted a characteristically Trumpian statement to Truth Social a couple of weeks ago, attacking Mitch McConnell and his wife, Elaine Chao, who you may remember served as Trump's transportation secretary. Here's what Trump said, quote, why do Republican senators allow a broken down hack politician Mitch McConnell to openly disparage hardworking Republican candidates for the United States Senate? This is such an affront to honor and leadership. He should spend more time and money helping them get elected and less time helping his crazy wife and family get rich on China. Woo. Well, this is not all not all that different from what the New York Times actually wrote in 2019, maybe a little different phrasing, uh, when an extensive analysis from the paper found, quote, the Chows and by extension, Mr. McConnell prospered as the family shipping company delved deeper business, developed deeper business ties in China. 
If you follow money in politics, you know Trump has a point about McConnell and Chow, although he's far from the best messenger, given that he put Chow in charge of our entire transportation department. So as soon as I saw the post, I assigned it to a reporter at The Federalist looking for a story that would lay out all of McConnell and Chow's known ties to China. My colleague Jordan Boyd wrote the piece. At some point, Trump then posted a link to the piece. So yesterday, the Wall Street Journal as editorial board dedicated a full column to defending McConnell and Chow attacking the Federalist story as, quote, innuendo. The journal's editorial managed two remarkable feats that we simply must talk about. First, it unwittingly confirmed why McConnell and Chow are compromised. Second, it weaponized identity politics to smear critics of two powerful politicians as bigots. The piece was just perfect. The weirdest third rail in Republican politics is that the party's top leader in Congress is personally connected to allies of China's government. So here's what the Wall Street Journal wants you to think is perfectly normal and above board. Chow's father is the founder of Foremost Group, which is a New York-based shipping company. Her sister is currently the CEO of Foremost. To its credit, the journal itself notes, quote, Foremost Group ships travel often to Chinese ports because much of the world's commodity trade goes to and from China. The destinations are set by the owner of the commodities. You can't be in the global shipping business and not travel to Chinese ports. That, of course, is exactly the point. Foremost needs to have a good relationship with the Chinese government. The journal continues, quote, some foremost ships were built in China over the years, but we're told the company currently has no such contracts. Well, I wonder who told them that. Maybe the same people who asked for the editorial. Quote, the company does have contracts for ships made in Japan, continues the journal, adding, quote, Angela Chow was also on the board of the Bank of China, a commercial bank, not the central bank, <laughs> because that makes it better. That bank, by the way, though, is still state-owned. Angela Chow has also praised China's One Belt, One Road initiative. You'd think that might concern journalists. You'd think it might concern conservatives who argue against crony capitalism. But here's the best part. The editorial hand waves all of that away by saying, but countless American firms have done business with Chinese companies since the country opened up in the 1980s and there was hope for its economic and political reform. So their logic is that Foremost is just one of the many companies that did business in China, except they're run by the family of a powerful American bureaucrat and Senate minority leader. That's what our story in The Federalist pointed out, these conflicts of interest. The journal said that amounted, amounted to, quote, guilt by innuendo. Well, in the case of political conflicts of interest, though, guilt by association, which they call innuendo, is substantively corrupt, not just in appearance. The appearance, though, is part of the corruption. People like Hunter Biden and Paul Manafort trade on merely the appearance of access to powerful people in government. Sometimes, as in the case of Hunter Biden, it gets worse and they actually then provide the access. But the appearance alone can increase their fortunes, whether it's in sh securing shipping contracts or being appointed to the board of Burisma. In Chow's case, the conflict did go beyond appearances, actually far beyond them. As Transportation Secretary, Chow repeatedly used government resources to do media appearances with her father, extolling his biography. They appeared together with the US DOT flag in the background. She brought her father, James, on Air Force One, where, according to his proud recollection, he and Trump, quote, talked business. He said that. 
His business is shipping. His daughter was in charge of transportation. This is very simple, and it's shameless, precisely because the McConnells know places like the Journal will happily give them cover. It's also a clear violation of a rule that bars federal employees from using their own office or using their office for their own private gain, for the endorsement of any product, service, or enterprise, or for the private gain of friends, relatives, or persons with whom the employee is affiliated in a non-governmental capacity. It's right there. You can read it. Media reports during the Trump administration quoted ethics experts aplenty saying, yes, Chow's family ties are clearly problematic. That was then, and this is now, when Trump is on the other side of the debate. Foremost is directly tied to the CCP. It's built ships with CCP loans that were used to deliver iron ore for a state-owned steelmaker. Quote, the cargo helps feed China's industrial machine, which manufactures steel products that are a point of dispute in the deepening trade war between China and the United States, wrote the New York Times back in 2019. As our transportation secretary, Chow attended a foremost ceremony to sign a contract with a Japanese company that the Times reported, quote, was subject to transportation department oversight for transit projects. Two months later, the Times wrote, Chow canceled a China trip after officials at the American embassy in Beijing raised ethical concerns when her office asked to have family members from the shipping company participate in events. Think about that. So how does any of this reflect on the Senate minority leader? The Chows have donated to his campaigns, although that's relatively minor compared to what Politico noted back in, in 2018. In April of 2008, Politico wrote, Elaine Chow and her husband received a large gift from her father in honor of her mother after her death. According to McConnell's financial disclosure forms, the size of the gift was between $5 million and $25 million, contributing to a sevenfold increase in his wealth over a 10-year period, sevenfold. So the McConnell's personal wealth is thanks in large part to the success of Foremost, which operates extensively in China and benefits directly from arrangements with the Chinese government. Peter Schweitzer has a fantastic chapter on this in his book, Secret Empires, which goes into great detail. As Schweitzer put it back in a 2018 headline, Mitch McConnell's in-laws bought 10 massive ships from the Chinese government since his wife Elaine Chow became transportation secretary. I mean, come on. The Senate minority leader is personally close with a CCP ally. His personal fortune depends in part on that closeness. His wife, who's overseen our Transportation Department, Labor Department, Peace Corps, and Maritime Commission since the Reagan administration, is the daughter and sister of CCP-loving business leaders. Those relationships have clearly been mutually beneficial and with taxpayer resources. Now, the WSJ, the journal, went so far as to implicate critics of Chow as bigots. Quote, it's hard to believe Mr. Trump would make these accusations if Ms. Chow was an ethnic Chinese, the editorial board wrote. The subheading of that editorial itself just plainly said, quote, the former president smears Elaine Chow because her family is ethnic Chinese. So the allegedly anti-woke editorial board of the Wall Street Journal is weaponizing identity politics to protect an extremely powerful political family. And that's how it works.
Ryan, we should have brought back the WSJ Tears t-shirt that you designed yes, back when right. graphic design was your passion. That's right, the Wall Street Journal Tears. <laughs> okay, so Elaine Chow was the head of the Maritime Commission. I think under she was involved with the Maritime Commission under Reagan. Then I think she was the top person there under H.W. Bush. She was the Labor Secretary under Bush the second. She was Trump's Transportation Secretary. This is incredible, and nobody talks about it, and I truly don't understand why. And also, how's she dodging responsibility for the shipping crisis that started, started on her watch? But also, uh, so Matt Jones, the you know, most popular sports commentator in Kentucky, uh, also get, delves into politics, almost ran against Mitch. He, he wrote a book called Mitch Please, uh, <laughs> a shockingly good and well-researched book that's a biography of, of Mitch McConnell. And his subheadline is How Mitch McConnell Sold Out Kentucky and America Too. And he goes deep into Mitch McConnell's kind of hostility to China mm -hmm. in the 1980s mm -hmm. and into the 19... Yes. Creeping into the 1990s mm -hmm. and then charts a 180. Yep. Right, right at the time that all of this wealth is coming in. Yeah. So you, not only do you have the appearance of all of these conflicts, you also have the appearance of a change in your politics while these conflicts are arising. And to say that uh, you, you can only kind of issue these criticisms because his wife is ethnic Chinese is just, it's classic gaslighting. Because mm -hmm. it, it's like telling people, like if you just read that, you're like, well, tr that is, that Trump's racist. He probably, that's probably true. He probably is doing that. And then you're like, well, what are, what are, what are the specifics here? <laughs> Let me see the details. Oh, interesting. It's sort, it's sort of like the way that so many people were kind of just thrown off of the the question of COVID's origin mm -hmm. by just saying, "Hey, if if you actually believe in any of this, it's just xenophobic. Like it's just yes. it's just anti anti Chinese racism." And so nobody then asked the second question: Well, what is the basis of your argument? Oh, uh, it's that there is a lab right by this this market that has just a huge store of SARS viruses there. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like one of the main places in the world that they do this research. Yeah, and they're, the same thing in those two case studies applies, where they're using identity politics. Powerful people weaponize identity politics to protect power. This is how power protects itself now. It weaponizes it, it uses it as a shield to uh, neuter criticism so that it just kind of withers on the vine and never gets a life of its own. And to hear it from the Wall Street Journal editorial board, I guess it's not entirely surprising, but it should have people give people an indication of how sincere the sort of anti-woke uh, rantings of of the editorial page, which sometimes I really like, uh, actually is because this is just like utterly, uh, utterly ridiculous for them to just hand wave all of this away as no big deal. If Trump really cared, he wouldn't have appointed her. Of course, he shouldn't have appointed her. That's really the actual question at right. hand that should be uh, dealt with. So, I mean, if you look at what actually happened under the Trump administration, they built 10 new ships while she's transportation secretary. Um, you can go down the line of the appearances with her father, who's a CCP ally with the Department of Transportation yeah. flag in the background. There's no question. That's, I'm happy to call that corruption. We don't need more investigations to at least know that that's corrupt. Very funny editorial from the, the Woke Street Journal. The Woke Street Journal. Now that's the t-shirt. <laughs> oh man, looking forward to what's on your radar next, Ryan.
Ryan, I've never seen your physical radar, but you always have one. I've got a so radar. What's on right, it today? It's right here, and it's also in the teleprompter. <laughs> so after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, people in Michigan began collecting the signatures required to vote on amending the state's constitution to enshrine a legal right to abortion. After all, that's what Sam Alito and his allies on the Supreme Court argued, that the decision was best left to the people back in the states. Now, you need 425,000 signatures to get on the ballot, quite a high bar, especially given that fewer than 3 million people even voted in Michigan's last election. But the energy around the petition gathering was off the charts, and the organizers turned in a stunning 753,759 signatures. The will of the people in Michigan couldn't be clear. They want to vote on this issue. And all that was left was for the Michigan Board of Elections to certify the signatures. The BOE staff analyzed what was turned in and found them to have way more than enough legitimate signatures. And then the Republicans stepped in. The measure needed three votes to clear the BOE and get on the ballot. And it got the support of both Democrats, but both Republicans voted no. They didn't claim that the organizers didn't have enough signatures. They just didn't care. Their two opinions, they said, count more than those of 753,759 of their fellow Michigan residents. The organizers now are going to appeal the rejection to the state's courts, and the Michigan Supreme Court has a Democratic majority, so I suspect that the measure will eventually make it onto the ballot. But it's important to think about what it means that Republicans would even dare to try to keep voters from being able to vote on this question after spending decades saying that it shouldn't be the court that makes abortion law, but states should make it. What they mean, though, is they only want the gerrymandered state legislature to make the call. And the two things are related because with abortion on the ballot, turnout will be huge in Michigan. Republicans have controlled the state house since 2010 and the Senate since the 1980s, but with redistricting, Democrats have a shot at flipping them both. Higher turnout would make that much easier. And it filters to congressional elections, too. There are at least three seats up for grabs in Michigan, and if Democrats can grab them all, they're a step closer to holding the House. Now, a few months ago, they had a lot, Republicans had a lock on flipping it, and they're still heavily favored, but particularly after this week, it's no longer guaranteed. Alaska voters went to the polls and pundits expected this candidate. Right wing and bitter clinging proud clingers of our guns, our God, our, and our religions and our... To win easily. They, they thought she was a shoe-in, but instead she lost to Democrat Mary Peltola, the first Native Alaskan ever elected to Congress. There will be a rematch now in November. Now, since Republicans overturned Roe v. Wade, they've been getting wrecked at the polls in special elections. Ryan Matsumoto, an analyst at Inside Elections, breaks them down like this. So Nebraska, the Nebraska 1st District, which Trump won by 15 points, moved to Republican winning by just five. Minnesota 01, that was uh, Trump won that by 10. Republicans only won it by four. New York 19, Biden won that by 1.5. Democrats recently won it by 2.2. In New York 23, Trump won that by plus 11. But then Republicans in the special election only won it by six, a five-point swing. And then in Alaska, Trump obviously carried that by 10 points. Democrats won the most recent election this week by three points. Now, one or two of those could be a fluke. Maybe ranked choice voting threw the one in Alaska off. But the ground is shifting. People are furious. And the answer from Michigan Republicans is to just not let people vote. And so, Emily, I wonder, is, is, is this the strategy? Like, if, because we were talking earlier, it's a minority position. 
particularly in Michigan, to say that abortion should be strictly illegal. Yeah. Yeah. So the only way it seems to maintain that is to prevent people from voting on it. Like, is that where Republicans are going to try to take this? And do you expect it'll still get on the ballot? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, so one thing I would say is that Republicans see it's a very similar flip side to the dynamic you just explained, which is that it's absolutely true Roe pulled poorly, um, or, or repealing Roe pulled very poorly in name. So like 60% of mm -hmm. people said they supported Roe. Uh, but that said, if you poll uh, what people think about whether there should be limits, you know, when you get into mm -hmm. the second trimester, public opinion gets very, very divided, and it's overwhelming when you get into the third trimester. And so Republicans see that as the messaging against abortion and actually really believe that you can, because uh, midterms about ba are about base turnout, that you can mobilize turnout for your candidate in a midterm election by talking about abortion, by having that conversation openly, because it forces Democrats to say, you know, when a reporter asks them, if a reporter asks them, would you, would you support any limits to abortion? Which is just, if you can't answer that question, you're not going to be, you know, that's mm -hmm. not going to be in the mainstream, whether or not voters will care enough to actually get out and, and pull the lever because of that is a different question. And that, I think, we have seen evidence, um, at least on the left and in the middle, people do care enough. It is, it does animate voters. And that's the distinction. And will that animate Republican and independents in the other direction if Republicans are able to talk about that? I don't know. It's an open question. I think I think this is an example where messaging actually meets substance. Like you, mm -hmm. and you, there's theory and then there's practice. So in in theory, people have takes on abortion, but abortion has been a, a constitutional right since Roe v. Wade. And so I think the polling on it is just was it was very difficult to tell the salience of the issue and right. what exactly people felt about it until it's actually taken away. Yeah. And so when you, when you take it away, now all of a sudden, yes, you have the, the kind of the quote-unquote pro-life movement you know, that's mm -hmm. going to come out, they're fired up, and they're, they're, they're going to vote. But in the past, you, di you didn't have that balanced by kind of an abortion rights surge because people didn't actually believe necessarily that mm -hmm. they were going to lose on this issue, that, that Republicans would actually have the chutzpah to go ahead and do this. But now that they've done it, I think you're, you're seeing all of these people who in the past wouldn't talk about it, or in the past wouldn't vote on it, um, in, including independents and Democrats, swinging wildly on this issue. And also, de Democratic elites never cared about this issue. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they, they thought yeah. it was icky. They didn't Same with Republican elites. Yeah, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't really want to go there. Mm -hmm. And the abortion rights uh, groups talked about this for decades, their yep. frustration, their, their inability to get... They, no matter what type of focus grouping and, and what type of polling they showed to Democratic leaders, like, we don't, we don't really want to, this is not our issue. This is like the, what the Republicans run on. Let them, let them do that, and we're going to run on whatever they're going to run on, whatever they poll in these swing districts. But now it's been forced on them, and they're seeing, because of those special elections that I mentioned, that actually the abortion rights groups for decades have been right, that there actually is a... a, a a, a latent and deep support for the right to choose among the American public, you know, that, that does correlate uh, apparently to that 60% that people thought was, you know, softer than it was. It's actually, when you take it away, uh, then that 60% is actually, no, no, like, we, we, want, we want that back. And mm -hmm. the question is, do they get tangled up in the, 
the kind of the, the extreme wing of it. And I think that's the rub. When you take it away, it's it is stronger than when it was actually existent. And the other thing I wanted to mention is when you're looking at those numbers, Nebraska, all those other districts that uh, the the tweet went through. Um, it's such an interesting insight into how I actually think I, I see this less as a, an issue of abortion and more uh, a referendum on Trump in to a way that actually is favorable to Trump because these areas. Uh, we're talking Nebraska, Minnesota, and New York. Um, that's, I mean, these are rural districts. Right, rural and suburban New York yeah, districts. And, the Republican yeah. Party has not, nobody is Trump. Nobody will ever be Trump again. And Trump is the ultimate double-edged sword for all of his flaws. Uh, the advantages of the sort of bulldozer mentality politically that can get, you know, white working class voters who may have voted for Obama to actually vote Republican. There are just so few other candidates. There's basically no other candidate that can do it in a, in a way that was as appealing to many people as what he did. Um, and so when he's not on the ballot, Republicans have not figured out at all how to tap into that. Uh, and also, I think Biden is a, a really probably not as good candidate as some of the others that were recruited. Yeah, and I think that's why Biden kept saying Trump and MAGA Republicans. Yes, yes. Because Trump, with the MAGA brand, can counteract the, his negatives because mm -hmm. he can bring out enough people that it like balances out. If he still loses a little bit, but because of the structural advantages Republicans have, you can still win the Electoral College and lose, lose the national vote. But Trump and MAGA Republicans, so the, the negatives on MAGA without Trump bringing out the base, that's where, that's Democrats' sweet spot, they think. Like if, the, if they can get Trump branding, but then there isn't Trump mm -hmm. to pull people out to the polls, mm -hmm. But, but the branding pulls their own people out to the polls, Exactly. then they think they've got it made. And it's totally intentional, and it's why, again, yeah, they're, they're planning more J6 hearings. They're going to mm -hmm. continue to do uh, some talk about the Mar-a-Lago raid. It's never going to go away in this election cycle, and it's because they want to drag every single Republican into that bucket uh, that Joe Biden gave a speech on last night. Yep. There you go. All right, up next, I think we got, uh, what, David Sirota from Denver. Maybe he's going to talk about the four-day fish show. <laughs> started last night out there. All right, stick around for that. <laughs> Founder of The Lever and editor-at-large at Jacobin, David Sirota, joins us now from Denver. David, welcome. Hey, how you doing? And so we were, we were just joking. We're, you were gonna, you're going to tell us you know, how, the, how the first night of the, the four-night fish run <laughs> out in Denver is going. Are the streets just swarmed with fish heads out there now? I wish I was going. I know a bunch of people who are going, but uh, alas, I have more mundane things on the plate this weekend. Actually, a fish is pretty mundane. <laughs> no, not, not if you do it right. <laughs> not if you do it right. So, no, but seriously, uh, so you, you, ha you have a new piece up about the, the real threat to democracy, to, to, pull, to pull on a theme that uh, Joe Biden teased at last night, that is dark money uh, wrecking, our, wrecking our elections. And, and flooding its way in there. You, you recently, over at The Lever, broke the news of the largest dark money contribution uh, to, made to a political organization in American history. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about democracy, threats to democracy, uh, and the ones that we identify and the ones that our political system chooses, chooses to ignore. So first, first, tell us a little bit about that, that massive contribution that you guys exposed. Sure. So as you said, it's the largest known dark money donation in the history of the country. Uh, it was a uh, donation effectively of a $1.6 billion company 
that was put inside of a dark money group. The company was then sold for $1.6 billion, uh, a maneuver, by the way, that uh, avoided effectively up to $400 million in taxes. A Chicago industrialist named Barry Side donated his company uh, called uh, Triplight, it's an electronics company, to the dark money group of a guy named Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo is the uh, Trump judicial advisor, the guy who's been running the uh, conservatives' effort to uh, shape and influence uh, the American judiciary. Uh, So Leo, who's been involved in court nominations and the like, now is sitting on top of a $1.6 billion empire uh, inside of a dark money group. Now, it's important to know, the only reason we know about the identity of the donor uh, is because uh, of documents that were uh, leaked, not because of basic disclosure laws, which underscores uh, a big point. In my view, journalists cannot do their jobs covering money in politics on a day-to-day basis, on a systemic basis, uh, without better disclosure laws. That right now, journalists and news organizations are relying on occasional leaks and occasional whistleblowers to tell the story of money in politics in America, that stories about money in politics right now are about the smaller and smaller portion of the American campaign finance system that is still subject to disclosure laws. But because those laws are so outdated, a larger and larger portion of that campaign finance system exists in the dark. And my point is is that regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, I, I think we should all be able to agree that we should at least be able to know who is influencing elections, legislation, and public policy? Yeah, I was just going to go there because in the lever you have sort of a two-front battle. One is that news organizations should be fighting for stronger insights via disclosure laws. And the, the most important part of that is just everybody should be fighting for stronger disclosure laws. Maybe a, a helpful way to understand that is uh, the the group, the Leonard Leo group that Side donated to, um, it's it's not a campaign, so it wouldn't be, you know, we don't, we're not going to know who maxed out at $2,500, which is a drop in the bucket compared to the kind of money that Leonard Leo now, now has at his disposal. Um, so what is the difference here um, with, when you're talking about a, a dark money group? Like what could, what law could specifically target the these groups that exist maybe in the nonprofit space and the PAC space that people should know about? It's a great question. So there's a, 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 a bill in Congress right now. It's been sitting there for really for, for a decade. It's got 50 Senate sponsors. Uh, so all the Democrats, including, by the way, Manchin and Cinema. It's called the Disclose Act. And the key provisions of it are would say that 501c4 groups, which are tax exempt groups, that can spend on politics, that they should have to disclose publicly uh, their donors, I think it's over $10,000, in other words, donors who've donated over $10,000, on a systemic basis, the same way that candidates disclose their donors. Uh, And and the bill also includes provisions to not allow donors to hide behind shell companies and LLCs. To me, this is the most basic thing we should be expecting of our political system. And I go back to, to Watergate. Watergate was the original dark money 
uh, scandal of the modern era. Uh, remember the whole follow the money. And out of Watergate came the original disclosure laws, campaign finance disclosure laws and the like. And those disclosure laws were important, but obviously they're being uh, incredibly circumvented. And I think there's one other point that's important here, which is the Supreme Court. You know, people go back to Citizens United and they point to Citizens United, including me. Uh, they criticize it uh, for unleashing a flood of unregulated money. But in Citizens United and all the subsequent rulings from the conservative bloc on the Supreme Court, those justices have continued to say that the government definitely has the power to require transparency and disclosure. In other words, even those justices who've unleashed this flood of the money era of politics have kind of justified their rulings by saying, well, at least the government should still and can still require disclosure, that sunlight is the best disinfectant, as the saying goes. So the point is, is that lawmakers pushing for disclosure are on very firm legal ground to at least let us know who is influencing and buying our democracy. And do you feel that ground shifting a little bit? And this might also be a question for Emily as well, because I've, I've, no, I've started to see some conservative commentators say that the, you know, mean tweets, uh, you know, from mean tweets all the way up to threats on the lives of politicians mean that because the, of this new dynamic, now you actually ought to be able to spend completely anonymously for your own safety, you know, because uh, you got to stay away from, you know, the mob, the mob is, the, you know, if, if you don't want to be, you know, uh, you know, tweeted at or have people protest in your yard, then you you have the right to speak without putting your name to it. Like I, I've started to see that bubble up in some circles. Are you are are you are you seeing that get any any traction? I, look, I could I could see that that argument being made, and that's a really dark argument to take the era of dark money and say actually it needs to be as dark as possible mm -hmm. so that people don't face any kind of um, uh, public shaming or the like. But I would I would go I, I would make the opposite argument. If you don't want uh, to face uh, criticism, if you don't want to face uh, public shaming, then don't try to influence the public square, right? I mean, I underscore the idea, the word public. The public square, if it's going to be a public and, and there's going to be a discourse and a debate, I think we all have the right to know who is speaking. And you can make a choice, a big donor, a billionaire donor can make a choice to say, listen, I don't want to be publicly shamed, so I'm not going to engage in that conversation. I think this idea of being able to manipulate the, the discourse, manipulate legislation, manipulate public policy, manipulate elections, we can debate whether there should be limits on uh, on w whether money is speech. But I, I think it really should be indisputable that if you're going to speak with a giant billion dollar megaphone using money as that megaphone, the rest of the country, the people being spoken to, should have the right to know who is doing the speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, it's, to Ryan's question, it just seems the more and more, the, I mean, the, the Nixon era, there was always money in politics going back to the Gilded Age and beyond. There's always been money in politics. But what we see now, uh, the spending that we see now is it's just on an incredible scale. And I think the more we see that, the, the more the public will be interested in knowing exactly where it all is coming from. David Sirota, thank you so much. Thanks to both of you. All right, we will be back with more Rising right after this.
News Nation Southwestern correspondent Allie Bradley is down at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, she's here to talk about her, her recent reporting. And let's put up uh, this, this most recent post from her. Um, Ali has said, uh, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey's office confirms the state has spent roughly $3.5 million to bus migrants to D.C. 43 buses carrying 1,574 migrants have departed from Arizona to the nation's capital. That's roughly $2,223 per person. The governor maintains he will only be sending buses to D.C. Allie, uh, what's, what, what have been the, the ramifications of this, this report? Because it's, you know, I think at first there, uh, a lot of people saw this as kind of just a bit of a silly troll of uh, liberals who, you know, don't want, uh, don't want to build the wall but don't want to, uh, you know, also handle a, a migrant crisis in their own city. Now, now we're talking about 1,500 people and millions of dollars. Has, has, that, has this changed the way that people are thinking about this uh, either in Arizona or elsewhere? Yeah, you know, right now, I think a lot of people still look at it as kind of a political stunt, but a lot of people in Arizona and in similarly in Texas, where Governor Abbott is doing a very similar thing, they're looking at it as, you know, the Biden administration is not doing a whole lot to secure the border. So what they're saying is, at least this is a start. At least they're doing something to secure the border. But again, it is taxpayer dollars. So there are some people that believe that that money could be better spent elsewhere. Interesting. And Allie, right now, I think you're on the border of Arkansas and Tennessee. And I'm really curious, Susie, you just said you think most people see it as a political troll, which I think is, is absolutely how a lot of people see it. Do the migrants um, see it as, do they see themselves as being part of a political troll? One thing a lot of people don't understand, or I think a lot of people, especially on the left, get wrong is that the migrants are very capable, very savvy. Uh, they're all very connected to the internet. They're all very connected to the news cycle. Um, I saw a, a bus actually getting off on a Friday night around midnight, just a couple of weeks ago, a bunch of uh, migrants at Union Station here in Washington, D.C. When you have the chance to communicate with them, do, do they see themselves as sort of political pawns or are they glad what's their take on everything yeah so we're actually following a bus right now that departed from texas yesterday afternoon this one's going to washington dc and i just spoke with a guy his name is hector he's from venezuela and he says he's very happy to be here he said they're all very excited there's a lot of laughter on the buses they all can get off whenever they want they don't have to stay on this bus we're stopped right now just outside of memphis and they're all outside. A lot of them were taking pictures, putting up their peace signs, putting up thumbs up. They're all very happy to be here. They're able to get out and take smoke breaks. There's bathrooms on the buses. There's televisions on the buses for the kids. They're playing movies to entertain the children. Uh, they have food. They have water. Uh, and again, this is all paid for by taxpayer dollars, and it's free to the migrants. And Hector was actually going to New Jersey, but a lot of people on these buses, it might Washington, D.C. might not be their final destination, but they take these buses with the intention of getting over to the East Coast and they can do it for free. So they're really grateful. The NGO in Del Rio, they've tweeted out several times that they're so grateful for these free bus rides that the governors are, are you know, really implementing and putting out there for migrants to get on. I'll actually, let me get out and I can show you the bus that we're following here so you guys can see it firsthand as well. Hmm. This is one of the buses. This is a charter bus here that they're taking and there are 52 people on this bus and again, they can get off at any given time that they want, and they do. They get out, stretch their legs, they get out, walk around. A lot of them were taking pictures with this little uh, <laughs> motor. So, you know, they're not prisoners on these buses. And they are all saying that they're very happy to be here, very happy to be in the United States. 
And I asked Hector why he left Venezuela, and he said, you know, it was just really hard there, and he couldn't make a life for himself. So, you know, when you look at it, if, if they're political pawns, I don't believe that they see it as that at all. Hmm. So do, do most of them know people in the Washington area? Are some of them pl planning to get off along the way where they, where they have family or friends? Or what's, what's bringing them yes, besides so the bus to Washington? Yeah, so we're actually mobilizing right now. Our crew's getting back in the car, and we're going uh, to follow this bus again. But a lot of them, yeah, Hector has family in New Jersey. A lot of them have family members, or their sponsors are, are somewhere that is, you know, in a, in a space where they want to go to the East Coast. They want to go to New York, Washington, D.C., or Chicago. Now, when you talk specifically about Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, they're only going to Washington, D.C., and I have asked him several times, are you guys considering any other state? Are you considering any other cities? And they said, no, the problem originates in Washington. So that's where we're sending them. So that's, that's their plan and they're sticking to it. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, we've got a labor shortage in, in the, in the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast here. So I guess that's uh, Governor Ducey's way of uh, help, helping us with that. Have they talked about what kind of work I was they say, hope to do? That's, that's my next question is, do you, do you have a sense, Allie, of what kind of documents they're getting? Um, because in my experience, it's usually kind of haphazard who has a work permit, who doesn't. Are, are they getting off these buses with work permits, documents that allow them to get work? What's it look like? No. So what they're getting off the buses with, or getting on the bus rather, is they've been processed and released by Border Patrol. Now, Hector specifically, he's claiming asylum. These people are all claiming asylum, and that's why they're able to be released by border patrol. That is, you know, they have some to have those uh, reports. Looks like we we might have just oh. lost the alley. They, oh, she's back. Oh, she's back. <laughs> Do you have me back? Yes. Hey, sorry, we're on the road, so this is real time. This is really happening right now. So, but what happens is during asylum claims. They can't legally work, and a lot of them don't have court dates for two to five years. So, you know, we talk about the labor shortage, but this is, this, there's not a real pathway for these folks to work in a legal manner. So a lot of them do work under the table until they get some kind of document where they can work, and that might take years. Right. So uh, can you share any of the, the asylum uh, claims that you heard? Did Hector talk to you about? The, this, his, his time in Venezuela and uh, why he's saying that he needs asylum here? A little bit. You know, he said it was really, really difficult. He said he couldn't make a life there. Uh, he said, you know, that, that he was hoping to make a better life here. And I did ask him if he's claiming asylum, and he said yes. Now, just being here to work is not a valid asylum claim. But we know that Venezuela has a lot of corruption in their government. We know there's a lot of issues there. So, so you know, that could be deemed as a valid asylum claim just based on the country he's coming from, depending on what our border patrol, uh, excuse me, what our immigration officers and our immigration judges determine. Yeah. Allie, great reporting. Thank you so much uh, for stopping by Rising while you're on the go uh, following the buses. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. All right, that's Allie Bradley, a News Nation Southwestern correspondent, and we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Well, 
a flurry of headlines this week gave some interesting insight into a dynamic inside the Republican Party as the midterm cycle heats up in the fall that is well worth thinking about for a moment. You can see the Washington Post story right there. Peter Thiel rebuffs Mitch McConnell over Senate rescue in Arizona. This is also about the Ohio race when you really get into it. Basically, Peter Thiel um, backed former business associates Blake Master and J.D. Vance in the Arizona and Ohio races. Those are key races in swing states, obviously. Um, and when Thiel came in, he wanted to back candidates who would be a, a bulwark against neoconservatism or would be a sort of a breath of fresh air in a party that was dominated by neoconservatism. He said he didn't want to get into, quote, a tit for tat over uh, general election spending with Democrats. He just wanted to be in early to give those guys a boost. Now, McConnell's Senate Leadership Fund last week abandoned $8 million worth of ads that were set to air in Arizona on Masters' behalf. The Washington Post reported that they had a conversation, Teal and McConnell had a conversation. It gets into all of their personal, all of their personal grief, you know, about Masters and Vance attacking McConnell. But then Mitch McConnell, as uh, Tim Miller says here, blinked in his standoff for Teal, and he will be a special guest at a fundraising dinner on behalf of Blake Masters. McConnell earlier this summer said that he was basically he set the groundwork for not doing as well in the Senate as uh, some people had hoped Republicans would, and actually took a dig at the candidates. Then Rick Scott came in with a Washington Examiner op-ed this week and criticized, as we wrote in The Federalist, he savaged Mitch McConnell for trying to sabotage Republican Senate races. Rick Scott criticized Mitch McConnell. They've also been having a sort of back and forth since the spring. Um, Rick Scott goes after Mitch, Mitch McConnell for saying, you know, the, for, for criticizing Republican candidates in the middle of an election cycle, which is entirely fair for McConnell to criticize the candidates in August of a midterm cycle. So, Ryan, all this said, uh, this insight into the dynamics of the Republican Party, into the dynamics of money in politics, into the dynamics of uh, the sort of MAGA, whatever that, however that's defined. Um, I think Masters and Vance are very positive iterations, the sort of post-Trump Republican Party. Party, and that's why Mitch McConnell doesn't like them. What's your read on all of this? So much fun stuff going on <laughs> in this in this dispute. Um, let, let's let's sidecar the the Rick Scott thing though, which is super fun. Uh, so uh, knives are out for Rick Scott. People are leaking that uh, all the money's disappearing. Where'd all the money go? He raised so much money, it's all gone. Rick Scott oversaw the largest uh, Medicare fraud in the history of this country, and then used that money. Uh, to run for the Senate and for governor in the Senate. Uh, people said he self-financed. No, that was a publicly financed campaign. That was, Medicare, that was a Medicare-financed campaign. So then he takes over the RSC, uh, the uh, RS, whatever, <laughs> Republican Senate <laughs> Committee, and the money all disappears. You put a Medicare fraudster on top of the committee, uh, and the money disappears. What? How shocking. I can't, can't believe that that happened. We're like, we need to run this like a business. No, not, not like one of your businesses, Rick Scott. So put well, that. But his, I mean, his business was very successful. That's true. That's true. He did quite well. Uh, and, but, and then settled uh, this multi-hundred yeah. million dollar uh, fine. Uh, so putting that aside. The, so Peter, Yes, let's put that aside. We won't spend time on it. <laughs> Peter Thiel. Uh, spends what, 15 million each or total in, in Ohio and Arizona? A lot. Boosting JD Vance and Blake Masters yeah, 15 through, through the primary. And then he's like, all right, I'm done. 
And the, and the Republicans were like, wait, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean you're done? You know, these, are not, these are not necessarily the folks that we thought were most electable in this state. Mm -hmm. You spent 10 plus million dollars to get them elected, and now you're just walking away and leaving it on us? And he's like, yeah, I don't really want to get a tit for tat with Democrats. Well, the tit for tat, that, that's, we call that a campaign. <laughs> that's like general election. What do you mean you don't want to get in a tit for tat? So I don't understand from Peter Thiel's perspective how it benefits his movement or his ideas if he rams through two guys and they both lose then in the general. I mean, J.D. Vance will have to work really hard to lose. Not impossible for him to lose. Uh, Blake, Blake could, could genuinely lose. Oh, like he's, he's down. Like he's, he's down to the, to the point where a lot of Republicans are like, we're not going to win this race. But he could win. He I mean, could win. I, they said that about Ron Johnson six years ago, and he came back and won. Yeah. Anything, anything could happen. But it's been a debacle so far. So I don't quite get from his perspective, from Teal's perspective, I mean, that's fun to watch, but, like, what does he think he's doing here? I think the answer's in the Washington Post op-ed where he says, it, according to the Post, he's worried that further association with Peter Thiel, if he keeps funneling money into the campaigns, it'll actually be... I think that ship has sailed. You'd th yeah, I think that's a good argument. He's worried, though, that's his concern, according to the Post, that if he keeps pumping money and if he is the real person backing these campaigns, um, then it makes those, ad or those attack ads easier to make. And no, the average voter is not going to make the distinction between whether he backed the primary or the general. So I think you're right. This ship has definitely sailed. But to Peter, in Peter Thiel's defense, uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't like these candidates. He never has liked these candidates. And that's why, you know, he's sort of, as, as Rick Scott pointed out, I think McConnell's comments last month were really about Herschel Walker, probably Oz, uh, who Trump really wanted, and probably also about Vance and Masters to some extent. But that being said, um, I really think it's, the, it's, Mitch McConnell is not the one who knows how to win elections in the post-Trump Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people who have new ideas, better principles, um, that are not sort of neoconservative and utterly devoted to the Chamber of Commerce. And that's what Peter Thiel is backing. And if Mitch McConnell doesn't want to get on that bandwagon and doesn't want to put the money that he would put into, you know, other candidates who never had Teal backing to begin with. Um, if they happen to be sort of heterodox and say some stuff like Mitch McConnell shouldn't be a majority leader, uh, then if he doesn't want to put the money into winning those seats, then he, I mean, he's committing a form of like political suicide, basically, because it's just he has to he has to accept the new sort of base of the party, which is more working class. And I wonder if He's just kind of okay if they lose. I think he is. Like, well, Mitch McConnell loves to obstruct more than he loves to uh, make policy. He's, his right. policy and, and is if, obstruction. And if Republicans have the House, then they can obstruct Biden's legislative agenda. Yeah. And so, you know, obstructing it in one chamber is good enough. Yeah. So McConnell can just chill in the minority for two more years. He, and then he doesn't have J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, like, making fun of him and, like, causing him problems inside the... Although he probably has at least one of them, but we'll see. Well, what was the... Uh, this was, what, 2012, the Wacko Birds or whatever? Yeah, and 2010, too. He's still, he's still scarred by Christine O'Donnell mm -hmm. losing in Delaware. Mm -hmm. uh, they lost in Colorado. Was it Ken Buck? Uh, I don't 
no, but the war on w women was a big, I think that's left a really big scar on the Republican establishment. Um, and they're, they're kind of terrified of Christine O'Donnell's. They mm -hmm. see a, a yep. Christine O'Donnell around every corner. Right, <laughs> right, because, because they didn't take back the Senate until 2014 when mm -hmm. really they felt like they should have had it by, at least by 2012. And you know, they, 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 McConnell feels like they left, what, four or five seats on the, on the, on the floor in, in uh, 2010 by nominating candidates uh, like Sharon Angle uh, in Nevada. <laughs> yeah. And you know, so uh, Aiken later in mm -hmm. 2012, mm -hmm. um, who, you know, with regular run-of-the-mill Republican candidates, bog standard, they probably win those races and then McConnell's uh, majority leader much sooner. So I think he's right. still scarred by by that for sure. Yeah, it's just a different, I mean, there's before Trump and there's after Trump, and after Trump, that's not the way to uh, appeal to Republican voters, and it's an incredibly difficult balancing act because you have somebody like J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, who I think had compared abortion to genocide at one point, and now having to, but he is like, he, he came on the show last year and talked about how you should be able to raise a family on mm -hmm. one income and be middle class in this country. That is a super appealing message, and uh, you didn't have the McConnell candidates making that message and they wouldn't support policies like that. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough balancing act. Nobody, as we talked about in your radar, nobody can be Donald Trump. Nobody can pull that uh, really fine line off. It's not to say that Trump doesn't go over any lines, uh, but it's the double-edged sword. Some people love that, and uh, it gets them to vote. So all that said, uh, this is something to definitely watch and to continue watching because I think the future Can't of the Republican away. Party is wrapped That's... up in this feud. Yeah. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. All right, well, a new article from Bloomberg in the headline says, women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. Uh, Ryan. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. I am the, shocked. The subheading, forging marriage and parenthood has a bigger payoff for American women than men, according to new research. I mean, of course, because women typically take more time off when they have children um, and are more likely to work part-time, yes. not because of the patriarchy. Actually, most women who have children say they prefer some form of part-time work to full-time work. You can't work. disentangle that from the patriarchy, though. See, wills, are, wills are a product of our culture and our superstructure, right? I, I actually think it's the opposite. I think, if anything, it's the patriarchy that continues to insist women become cogs in the corporate machine instead of doing what they would prefer. And women have been conditioned since Betty, Betty Friedan to believe that there's no value in work that is well, sort of innately attractive. Bloomberg's begging the opposite here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. Now, Ryan, as a parent, this has to be the least surprising news ever. Kids are extremely expensive. Mm. Yes, and that, well, that's one reason uh, that I thought the, the child tax credit was such an important policy. Because, okay, congratulations to these, the, the woman who's, not, who's getting rich, and, or the man who's getting rich because he's not uh, having kids. And they t the article talks about how they get to travel a lot more. They get to have a second home in New Jersey. They get to, they get to take vacations. All of the people that produce the economic growth that enables that luxurious lifestyle. Mm -hmm. All the people who are working on the, the airlines that fly you to your island vacation, the people serving you your drinks, the people cleaning your rooms, all of those people were raised by somebody. Yeah. We're all doing that. We're doing that work for you so that there are people out there to take care of you in your luxurious time. So that's, that's why I thought the child tax credit was at least a little 
a little recognition of, of that fact. Yes, congratulations that, you know, that you're not part of that, and as a result, your, your bank account looks, looks much fatter. But yes, kid, like the, the quickest route to poverty is uh, having children. Mm. Like that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the tragedy in our country. Well, and actually where I think it gets even more tragic and gets to the point we were kind of debating a little bit earlier in this segment is that Lyman Stone at the Institute for Family Studies has found American women actually are having less children than they say they want, which is extremely sad. And it's extremely sad when you consider, I think this was uh, Mindy Kaling in, what was it? She was in one of the glossy magazines recently talking about how uh, parents as a gift for their young daughters who I think it was either graduating high school or college should be given egg freezing so that they can focus on their careers in their 20s, which from your perspective, I imagine is a very sad statement on uh, the, the sort of impossibility of workplaces that make it easier for women to have, uh, you know, for, for women to work and, and have uh, fulfilling personal lives in ways that they might want to. And from my perspective, I would say that's incredibly dehumanizing in treating women, again, like cogs in a corporate machine whose purpose in life is best fulfilled by work. And I can, I've been reading a lot of Marx lately, actually, Ryan. Okay. Um, but you, you, know, you can go back to a lot of different uh, thinkers and, and how, especially during the Industrial Revolution, they were reacting to uh, tra changes in work. But what's your perspective, since I put words in your mouth? <laughs> well, I mean... And which Marx? Marx's gender analysis was not very fleshed out. It was interesting. Right. <laughs> it was. I, I'd recommend Keynes more when it comes to because I think you'd appreciate his, you know, the, the way that Keynes tries to think about the economy in terms of the way that it can serve a a, a robust and and healthy society. But in something like the twenties or thirties, he was he was talking about how once you have enough uh, automation and economic growth people could be working about 15 hours a week. And there's some interesting studies that say that yeah. if you combine life expectancy, the growth in life expectancy, which has since recently reversed, uh, with the extra amount of retirement that people have, coupled with the kind of extended adolescence, mm -hmm. you know, in 150 years ago, people started hitting the factories by the time they're 10, 11, 12. Yeah. Now often you're pushing that deep into your 20s. And so if you combine the, that, let's call it leisure, with the retirement leisure and add it all together, actually a lot of people are working an average of, say, 15, 20 hours a week over their entire lifetimes. But the mistake that we make is then we, we jam it all onto people when they're also you know, uh, in, a, in a place where they're starting to create families. And it's... Mm -hmm. And they're completely sleep deprived. No, and it's interesting because actually I wasn't even referring to Marx's um, work on gender or sex, but more his work on alienation and labor in general and the way we're conditioned uh, to work post-industrial revolution and in post-industrial right. world. It happened really quickly. And in the United States, I mean, listen, I'm here. I'm happy to be here. I think it's great that women have those, those freedoms. And there are a lot of people who I wouldn't agree with who I absolutely owe a debt of gratitude to for fighting for that. There's no question about it. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, you know I think every part of it was good um, or that we, we fully thought through all of the ways women might be fulfilled uh, differently. Right. His, his point is profound and correct that when that when you're exploited for your labor yeah that that your whole your soul is alienated by that and and and, and it starts to rip society apart 
and, and Mindy Kaling is just asking more women then, and this would be my opposition to it. Uh, it's just prioritizing that, that soul-ripping exploitation over uh, something that's, I think, very clearly much more human and much more fulfilling. So, uh, yeah, these are d deep issues, but I'm actually glad there's more conversation about them because I think the... the the rapid, rapid, rapid advancements in technology, not just in the past 10 years, but in the past 200 years, and you can even go further back than that, um, have really changed the way we live very quickly. And it's, it's worth pausing and just kind of thinking about things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, oh, and Zach Carter's uh, Kane's biography is the, place, is the place to go for that one. You'll, you you'll love it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think it's called The Price of Peace. I remember we were talking yeah. about that actually so good. last year. It's so good. All right, I'll check that out. Well, I'll check it out. We'll do a Rising Fridays book club. There you go. <laughs> we'll have more Rising for you after this. Well, a new Daily Caller report found that the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns, both in 2016 and in 2020, were slapped with a fine because they were they had hired illegal immigrants during those campaigns. This is in reference to three, two of whom were Mexican, one of whom was Argentina. Not huge fines, but fines nonetheless. Ryan, uh, there is a rule that bars foreign nationals for to for working on campaigns, contributing campaigns indirectly or directly. Um, it's a relatively minor offense, still not exactly playing by the rules. These were DACA, though. These mm -hmm. people were here under DACA. What do you make of all of this? I think you actually maybe even know some right, of the sure. people yeah. in the story. These, these, you know, I I know at least two of these uh, these campaign campaign workers, and they're and they've always been public that they are dreamers. Right. Like this is not, this is not like anybody uncovered anything secret about their past. Like these are people who were brought to this country as, as children, mm -hmm. uh, and because they have, they still have never passed the Dream Act into law. Um, all we have is the court recognized DACA program, right. Deferred Action for Dream, basically for Dreamers, who, you know, are within a certain period of time. Um, which give, which gives them a protection against removal, uh, but does but does not because you need Congress to do it, give them a, a pathway to citizenship. Right. So they're stuck in this limbo where, you know, they've only ever known basically uh, living in the United States. Um, they are people in this world, so they need to work. Uh, but and and DACA allows that in, uh, but doesn't then undo the kind of federal laws around calling them foreign nationals because they're because right. because they're not able to go through the immigration process right. and they don't have green cards yet uh, they don't they 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 don't um, they're still then legally considered limbo in in limbo well yeah. they're legally considered a foreign national they're legally considered a mexican but they can national, work and even they, though they haven't right. been there since they're like a year old or something like it's that. a mess and so it's the, it's basically a reverse loophole that has them caught up in this. Like there's not like I I'm I'm I think the campaign should have hired them. And if and if the campaign has to pay a fine, okay, fine, make it. And we'll see if that even if it even happens because this is a preliminary report from the Daily Caller. F, FEC is completely dysfunctional because it doesn't have a quorum as far as I as far as I know at this point, which which might be necessary to issue some more significant. Um, d rulings, uh, but okay. Like, if 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 in order to hire a dreamer, you have to pay a little bit of a fee uh, to the FEC, then I would say just consider it part of the fee. But I think 
our, I think our political system is not complete if we don't have the voices of those people participating in it. And the idea that because of some, because of this particular law that dreamers should not be able to volunteer for even, like that, like the, the law would say that you shouldn't even be able to volunteer and door knock for Bernie, for Bernie Sanders or whoever Yes. Uh, if, you're, if you're a dreamer. It's just, it's just completely absurd. Well, because they, they didn't have anything to do with the, where they were born and, and how they got here. So t two points on that. I think that's why Obama's executive action actually was really, really, I mean, put people in a very difficult situation. And it's our immigration system is Byzantine and convoluted. We did a segment earlier with Allie Bradley, who was following the buses of migrants um, coming from Arizona and Texas to Washington, D.C., whether or not people can work, they're given, whether they're just allowed into the country while they, their asylum claims pend. It's a complete mess. And it's exactly that confusion that cartels prey on and bring more and more young people who have nothing to do with why they end up in the United States. It's not of their own volition or free will. It's because their parents sent them uh, with coyotes or, I mean, it's just a complete tragedy. Um, one question I have for you as we we're just discussing this, how did DACA not make it into any of the legislative packages that Biden has passed so far? I guess because of reconciliation. Yes. So, right. It, in fact, the, they tried. the parliamentarian. Yeah, the parliamentarian is, is, shut it down. Right. And so, the, right, they were, going, they were going to do, and actually, if you remember, we had a little debate with Jeff Stein. That's right. Because um, I, I had heard that uh, Democrats were trying to do immigration reform through, uh, through DACA, I mean, through reconciliation. And they, their understanding was that it should be able to be done through reconciliation. The problem for them is they happened to have an INS, a former INS agent, right. INS prosecutor, as a parliamentarian. Right. And the parliamentarian wrote this, you know, purple over the top uh, opinion ruling saying that, uh, yes, it's true that the immigration provisions have significant budget implications, which ought to allow them uh, to go through under reconciliation. But the, uh, the result of getting citizenship is, is so profound that it, it overrides anything related to the budget implications, the budget. and therefore it's substantially policy rather than budget, which is so, so absurd that she would take that kind of subjective uh, view of it, because then why would the climate provisions be able to go through? Yeah. I mean, well, I, think, yeah. I would think that like rescuing this entire planet from like apocalypse is more important than the budget implications. So therefore, yes. no, basically the only things you could do through reconciliation under that reasoning are completely meaningless things. What her problem was that her own subjective experience with immigration clouded her, her, her vision of, of the kind of relative importance of that issue compared to other issues. All issues are mm -hmm. important. Like she allowed drilling in Anwar to go through. Well, yeah. You could certainly have people say that the profound destruction of the Alaskan national wildlife uh, outweighs the budget implications, and yep. therefore it can't go through reconciliation. So anyway, and and then Democrats didn't fire her, didn't didn't overrule her, right? So Which they could have, right? But and it wasn't. Oh, you did a good yeah. radar on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, they could have. I mean, they could have. It's never been done, basically. Um, no, I mean, they fired. They have fired parliamentarians in the past, but they've. It, it's been decades since they've overruled, mm -hmm. and so overruling then according to people like Manchin and Cinema, is considered to be the same thing as breaking as as uh, reforming the filibuster right. which they're all which they also say they're against anyway i don't think it was obama 
Obama that put them in a difficult position. It was not passing the law, like because they're already in a diff difficult Obama position. But Obama knew that law might not pass. That was the problem with doing it via executive action as the president of the United States. He knew that there was a chance that bill would get stuck in Congress. And so to take the but, first step without no, guaranteeing it already, the rest. No, it had already been rejected in Congress. But then they had hope of a fresh wave and that there would be new conversation about it. They've never been able to get the DREAM Act through. It, but if, if you don't put the executive action in place, those people are still here. They're still in a tough position. Right. But now they don't even have protection against removal. But now it seems like the, the legal complications of the status are just as bad as they would be, even if, if not even more complicated. Well, they, than they still were wouldn't prior. be able to work for a campaign. Right. With for or a without campaign. that executive action. Yeah. So it protects them from deportation, which is, you know, a, a significant benefit, because that's a frightening thing to think about that at any moment you could get picked up and sent to a country where you don't know anybody and you haven't been since you were a little baby. But that could also happen via a Republican Congress. Uh, I mean, they could reverse, certainly. Well, they tried. Right. Courts, right. courts upheld it, right? Right, but that's, a, I mean, it, it could happen. It's, it's just, it's a very, it's, I, I, I can't imagine. But, but Republicans doing bad things is not, to me, not an argument for Democrats not doing a good thing. Well, if it's a good thing that could be on the whim, that is, that is predicated or not, that, that could subject people um, to the political sort of winds in very difficult ways. Um, but I mean, I, th I take I, your point. I, I take yours. And I hope that, it, that I hope that if Democrats hold Congress and have enough votes in the Senate to get this done, that they just get it done. Well, and by the way, like my broader perspective on all of this is that things like DACA just make it easier for parents to send their kids up and, and wait for these asylum claims to be litigated, litigated and take these really dangerous journeys where they sort of live in the shadows of the country. Um, and it's just a, it's a really bad incentive system overall. That's, that's why I guess I, the DACA is, is part of that, certainly from my perspective. But I think what we're can both agree is that this is just a tragic mm -hmm. sta state of limbo and our politics is failing our people and uh, people who need asylum and people whose countries are in tatters. Yeah. That's right. It's a mess. Well, we'll be back with more Rising Fridays right after this. Hello. What you caught just there was Ryan and I <laughs> working out uh, who was starting this block. Uh, but I guess it's I will you. do it. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he pointed. So that's how you decide. Uh, but actually, this is really interesting. A re Republican attorneys generals, I believe they're all Republican attorneys generals, um, have been looking into communications between our government and tech. Turns out that there were uh, some regular meetings happening. And you know, it's not as though this is huge, earth-shattering news. It's always good to have the public records, even if they're redacted, and to have the emails. But uh, it's important to remember that actually Jen Psaki last year had said that her colleagues were, quote, flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. She said at the time, it's important to take faster action against harmful posts, and Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful, violative posts. And now the benefit of these emails is I think we do see official government communications. Um, we, we knew this was happening, essentially. They admitted it. They were actually sort of proud. Like, they see this as something that's good, that the base would be upset if they weren't doing. Um, and they're pressuring a, a private company to censor private speech. Ryan, do you think there will be more to come from this? House Republicans have asked for Meta and Facebook actually to keep 
all records of their communications with the FBI in the 2020 presidential cycle because Mark Zuckerberg said last week and had told Ron Johnson previously in a congressional hearing that uh, the FBI had come to them, told them to be high alert, on high alert for Russian disinformation. And that is partially why they censored or suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story, although Mark Zuckerberg doesn't remember if they were told anything uh, specific about that particular case. So where does this go? Uh, so, but yes, so these emails confirm that Saki was telling the truth. Yeah. That they were actually, this is, the, this is the CDC communicating with Facebook, right? Saying, uh, you know, here, here's our latest on uh, what, where we are on public health measures related to COVID, and we'll update you on, on this on a weekly basis on a call. Uh, they're also talking about calling out disinformation or misinformation, uh, and they're, and they're going to, identify pieces that they say are wrong and, they'll, and then they'll meet in calls. What this, what this to me felt like reading it was like a publisher, like a, yes. This is yes. like this is journalism. Yes. Like Facebook is doing journalism here. They're reaching out to experts and they're, and they're getting their take to, the, to then curate news and opinion mm -hmm. that they then share with the public. Like that's, that's basically what journalism is. Well, they have fact checkers who they right. pay. And this is why Mark Zuckerberg repeatedly, he said this on Rogan last week again, said, well, we don't want to be doing any of that stuff ourselves. But actually, even in curating the selection of fact checkers mm -hmm. they do, in curating what constitutes ultimately based on those fact checkers recommendations as disinformation or not, Meta at the end of the day is doing journalism. And so is Twitter. And the reason they're so intent on avoiding those classifications is because it means that Section 230 would right. not protect them. Right, right. So then they'd be they'd be liable for all sorts of uh, libel, but, right, or, or or other problems that uh, you know uh, mushroomed on their on their site. Uh, I think the Republican request is interesting. I think just just for the, even at a minimum for the historical record, mm -hmm. you want to know what what did what did the FBI communicate to Facebook about the election yeah. and about what they understood about Russian potential for disinformation. Where did did they communicate specifically about this looming Hunter Biden story? Right. Um, or was it a more general, hey, it's election time, the Russians are going to be up to something, look out. Uh, that because you know they kind of made those claims publicly. Mm -hmm. So if it was only kind of a, a repetition of those claims made privately. It's a little less interesting if they if they did flag like, hey, we've heard that this laptop thing is coming, and, and then Facebook absorbed that, and then Facebook used it in their algorithmic decisions about how much to amplify it. That's we should, everybody should know that we should learn that, and if Republicans take the House, uh, I'm sure they'll subpoena that. Probably, um, and it's it's kind of interesting because it's not as though campaigns. And companies have never pressured publishers and journalists not to run something or mm -hmm. to attack someone. Of course, that has always happened. It happens all the time. But what's really interesting about this case study is that Jen Psaki is openly, and the Biden administration, they're saying we need more of this. And they're openly, publicly, it's part of their pitch, actually, is that what we need is more cooperation between the private speech platforms 
and the government. And of course, there you run into problems about what happens behind closed doors and what happens in emails that don't get FOIA'd and then don't mm -hmm. get redacted or do get redacted. Um, but the other like obvious issue is how we've just stumbled into this totally Orwellian arrangement where the government is actually bragging about working hand in hand. I'm sure the Biden campaign was part of the pressure campaign privately to with these companies. I'm sure they were in communication with Meta. I'm sure they were in communication with Twitter about what to do with these posts. So when you have all of these different levers uh, being pulled at the same time and being all going all in one direction, it's funny to think uh, those, those uh, days after the laptop came out in the New York Post, Everyone was really, you know, you had the intelligence community, 50 of those guys came out and used their credibility mm -hmm. to shut down the story as Russian disinformation. So we know, you know, intelligence community, private company, government, likely a political campaign, all working together um, to suppress harmful information against the campaign. So, again, I feel like it's, you're stumbling into just an Orwellian arrangement. It's interesting how kind of neatly big tech is slotting into the role that kind of the big monopoly media companies played in the mm -hmm. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah. into, into the 80s where you'd have the head of t the publisher of Time Magazine or the publisher of the New York Times and the Washington Post constantly on the phone with the Dulles brothers yep. before go going to print with something like, can we do this or should we not do this? And, and oftentimes... Alan Dulles might say, you know what, don't do that. Or John Foster Dulles might say, you know, actually this, this is harmful to us. We would, don't do this. Sometimes in order, sometimes just a request because, you know, they're at a three martini lunch and this is like the, the elites just like managing the, the way that the news is, is disseminated and manufacturing consent as, as Chomsky called it in relation to the corporate control of it. But this was more of a, a kind of, a corporate slash government control because the Dulles brothers and all of these others are in and out of the, these major firms and there, there isn't as much of a dividing line between kind of the State Department and say Coca-Cola's global empire right. at, at the time. Right. Uh, so to see that, to, start, to see it start to develop where you, you'd have that, these back channels going on is interesting. Uh, the, on the other hand, in the middle of like a, a once in a century pandemic, you kind of do hope that all of the institution, like in a functioning society, you would want the kind of media entities that are distributing information to the public to be giving them accurate information in a pandemic. Well, of like, course, but this is this gets to Biden's speech last night, which again, it's like we we don't have we do not share right. fundamental definitions of really important terms, both legally and socially. We do not agree in any way, shape, or form on what constitutes racism, bigotry, violence. We can't agree on what constitutes violence because there's a group of, a, pre a pretty powerful group of people that works at elite institutions that think speech is a form or can be a form of violence. And so that's then disinformation. We don't agree on what's factual or what's not. Like alternative facts is one of the most, uh, arguably one of the most sort of prescient um, labels or like concepts to emerge in recent years because we're operating, we're all operating on an alternative set literally of what we see as facts. And so then you get into this intense legal jeopardy um, and social jeopardy where you can't really communicate anymore. The judge in the Mar-a-Lago case, by the way, just apparently ordered the release of, uh, of the list of what they seized. Like oh, a, good. A more detailed 
When noise started coming out of his laptop, I assumed it was fish. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, okay, here we go. <laughs> Last night's show. Well, no, on that note. No, this is going to be interesting. We'll see what, see what they found. Yeah, well, but on that note, uh, there, there's a, a, a little transition to it. Oh, that's right. That's right. So some, some, some bittersweet news. Um, we've been here at Rising for a year and a half. Some change, almost yeah, on and off. Rising and then... Fridays, last who knows? Time, time just all blends together <laughs> for me. That's so cool. Uh, this, this is not our last show. We're gonna next week will be our last Rising Fridays show. Uh, we will continue coming back as as guest hosts, as, oh, really? as guests, like not 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 leaving in a huff. You know, not flipping any tables over or <laughs> anything, anything like that. Just gonna, you know, we're gonna go head over with our with our buddies over at over at Breaking Points, Crystal and Crystal and Sager, and That's it's right. just a fun, just a fun opportunity. But but that doesn't doesn't mean that we're not gonna be here. When, when we started, I want to get your take on this too. When we started the first day, we said when Crystal and Sager uh, left Rising to go uh, create Breaking Points, that people should think about that as a a good and creative. Thing, uh, creatively adding to the kind of populist media, totally uh, independent media out there that that you know they they created this space here. Uh, then now they're going to create another space. This space continues to thrive, and so as that as that all continues to thrive, you're just creating you know more and more and more of the type of news that I think people really want and and need. And so th this is all a, all a good thing. It's additive rather than subtracting or dividing. Totally, it's the snowball rolling down the hill in the best possible way. And yeah, when, when we first, right after Crystal and Saga originally left, neither of us had the bandwidth to do this full time right. and still don't. And that's why we're on Fridays, we'll be on Fridays at Breaking Points too. Um, but Robbie and Brianna, when they have time off, we're, you know, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll be planning to come back in as guest hosts, as guests. Great. And they're right. doing great. And that's, and that's to your point, that's exactly why it's additive uh, rather than anything else. So rising is a very, very, very special place in our hearts. I hope everybody knows that. Um, and even more importantly than that, the rising audience um, and the whole team here has a very special place in our hearts. Yeah. We will, of course, have more for you next week. This is not our last week. We'll be right. back next week. Um, right. So we'll, we'll have another great Rising Fridays. Yeah, yeah tremendous production crew, uh, the mm -hmm. producers here. Uh, you know, sometimes we can just uh, roll in here with having done very little and the, and the, the, <laughs> the crew will just have done basically everything. <laughs> And that's rare. It's rare to yeah. have that level of, of support, and I'll really, I'll really miss that. To, yeah. to, to have so many people that you can just trust implicitly. Totally. A, a very well-oiled machine. Um, I also like that you said the flipping tables thing, because it, to my knowledge, Teresa Judice is your favorite Real Housewife. Yeah, she, I mean, she's tough to beat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Summer Lee, who's coming in to join the squad, recently said that she was going to be flipping tables when she got to the house. Okay, was cool. fun to see. Okay, so maybe yeah. she should... Some, she, she probably watches it, right? She should link up with yeah. Teresa. That's right. Uh, you were engaged 19 times? Okay, I won't go into the whole... Uh, I, I won't reenact it. But on that note, maybe I'll reenact it next yes. week. Maybe that's the tease. Yes. Uh, or no, maybe yeah. Ryan We'll this, I think this is it. There's no way that we can flip this. All right. Well, tune in to see whether we end up being able to flip the desk uh, on the final edition of Rising Fridays. Have a great weekend, everyone. We look forward to seeing you after the Labor Day weekend. Enjoy the break. Yeah, see you soon.